as we sit at this time, can we bow our heads and pray together? Apathy is the acceptance of the unacceptable. Lord uh, God, those were the words of Adrian as he led our prayers, but we ask that where our hearts are unacceptable before you, you would lead us from apathy and recognize it. Let us not accept a situation that displeases you, but move hearts and minds to repentance and change, we pray. Amen. Do please open that uh, again if you've closed it. Uh, page 492. Well, where are we in the story? The walls have been rebuilt, but according to the beginning of chapter 7, the city itself remains a ruin. And in order to get people into the right places, Nehemiah had to discover, well, who are these people? Who are the people who need their land reallocating? And so he had to have a big census, a registration of the people, not just inside Jerusalem, but outside. And chapter 8 opens as that registration has been completed. We could have read it, but that would have taxed uh, even Chris's ability with names uh, throughout chapter 7. So everything is settled. Phew. What next? Well, we hear. They assemble, square in front of the water gate, and they read. They listen to a reading from Ezra. And so it seems that this is going to be a text to warm the heart of any church that calls itself evangelical. Evangelistic means to proclaim the evangel, the good news of Christ, Evangelical means to take our stand within the church upon the word of God that contains the good news of Christ. And the scribe Ezra reads from the law of God, that's the first five books of, the, of our Old Testament, and the people respond and good things happen. Indeed, they go some, to some trouble in the account that we've heard uh, read to set up the event in such a way that the word of God would be bound to be honoured. Those who gather are all who could understand. And a couple of times we get this phrase, men, women, and others who could understand. So presumably there were some younger people there, which was quite rare. They listen attentively, according to verse 3. They stand up in honour of the law, in verse 5. And they worked hard, uh, actually, to get it into their heads. The law that Ezra would have read would have been in Hebrew. But during the time of exile in Babylon, the people had started to shift to this dialect that we now know as Aramaic. Uh, it was the language that was uh, spoken by Jesus. And it's the church language of, uh, I think it's the Syrian Orthodox Church still today. But that was the language they spoke, so there had to be some translation. And according to verses 7 and 8 of chapter 8, the Levites are there to translate from the Hebrew into the Aramaic that the people would understand. And perhaps they would have uh, done some explaining of, of what this all meant, some, some application as well, we can't be sure. 
And then they made things more effective, given that the people were standing, by putting Ezra himself on a platform. So although they were standing, they could see him. I don't know if you know the website, the Ship of Fools. They have a, uh, like, like a mystery shopper, goes around supermarkets. They have a mystery worshipper um, in this satire site that goes around from church to church. And um, the report on Holy Trinity comes from a few years ago. And I've, I've seen reports of lots of churches on the Ship of Fools, and they're often very devastating. And I have to be very pleased to, to reflect that they're actually quite positive about Holy Trinity. The only thing that was, they said, that it was actually quite difficult to see the preacher because he was very short. Uh, they, did, they solved that in the days uh, in front of the Watergate by putting Ezra on a platform so that he could be seen. They go to great effort then to make sure that the law of God is heard and heard effectively. And that has to be a good thing. But why? Why do they do that? Why was the reading of the law of God such a very good thing? Why did they ask for it in the first place? And surely it's this. They expected that in the law, God would reveal himself. He'd communicate with them. And so the first question that we can put to ourselves from this passage would run like this. I am an evangelical. This church is evangelical. But I know the danger I can fall into of, of reading the Bible as a kind of ticking the box exercise. There we are, job done, Bible read. So do I, do we, this is the question, come to the Bible remembering that in these words is heard the voice of the living and active God? communicating with us as he reveals himself and his will? And I have to say, at least for myself, the answer is often no. And if we don't, then the writing, reading of the Bible is going to become formal and formulaic, rather in the way that uh, brushing our teeth might be before we go to bed or when we get up in the morning. And then it will fade away altogether. That's the first question. But we, we can move on. And let me ask you to summon a memory. When did you last cry? And over what? I do want you to spend a moment thinking about when that was. It's not a rhetorical question. Maybe it was a sadness, a frustration, or a disappointment. Maybe it was positive. Maybe it was a joy, a love. But when was it? I don't need to know but it would be good if you knew. When did you last shed a tear? If you go to a big bookshop like Waterstones and browse along the books, you know the, the, um, the shelves that have sort of lifestyle stuff uh, and self-help and, and, and the human spirit, you will find uh, a lot of books that have in them something about happiness, um, the how of happiness, or, or the Dalai Lama on the art of happiness. And I wonder what those people expected that day when they'd gone to the trouble of getting up to be in place at daybreak on that day of that reading. And as Ezra opened the scroll, they all stood up. What, what was the mood in that collective heart and mind? What were they expecting 
from those hours. We're told he read till noon. And I'm guessing they were expecting happiness. The wall was built, the land inside was allocated, the people are settled. Time to give God his due. And be happy in reminding themselves of the covenant, the enduring covenant with God. You will be my people and I will be your God. Indeed, when Ezra, as we've heard, praised the Lord, the great God, they all lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And I would be pretty sure that what they did not expect was that they would be found crying their eyes out. But that's what happened. Verse 9 tells us that the leaders had to say to them, No, don't mourn and weep. Verse 11, do not grieve. Why were they crying? Well, because the reading of the law was telling them how far short they were falling of the ways in which God wanted his people to worship him. They came to the law expecting God to speak, expecting God to reveal his character, and when he did precisely that, they knew they were falling short. And so these are tears of repentance that day. Go to Waterstones, and you will not find many books on happiness through repentance or the art of grieving. And that matters because we need to recognize that our culture gives us no support, no help in understanding that godliness and grief for sin might be connected. Grief and tears and sobbing are acceptable, even encouraged these days, as ways of an emotional response. And there's nothing wrong with that, that's fine. But in our world, wouldn't you be thought mad if you supposed that grief could be a proper moral response? And yet that's what this reading is telling us happened. And I doubt very much whether the religions and the lifestyle around the people of Israel 400 years ago, 400 years before Jesus rather, gave any more support to grief godliness than our own world does. In the word, they met the holiness of of the living God and their reaction was to weep. And so there's a second question we can ask ourselves from the passage. When I asked you what it was that last moved you to tears, I doubt whether it was the word of God for many of us. A gathering of hundreds, perhaps thousands, two and a half millennia ago, knew more about the holiness of God as he is met in his word than we do. Yes, admittedly, this was an extreme circumstance. The word hadn't been opened like this for some time, and yes, they were all together. But can I ever remember God's word moving me to tears? Well, actually, yes, I can a few times, but not often. But how I would long to read the Bible and to find the tears flowing as I met the holiness of God 
and recognized afresh how I stand before him. Well, of course, that's not the end. The leaders do, after all, say to the people, stop it, stop weeping, you don't get it. We called this day to move us to joy as we realize that what we have not done up to now is possible. We can do. This is a joyful day because God's ways are possible. And so now go away and do two things. First, feast and share your feasting. Then secondly, fetch and build your booths. First, feast. Nehemiah and the others say to the people, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and share that with others, with those who have nothing prepared. Just very much like one or two of you were kind enough to do for me at the church lunch because I've just got back from holiday. There no, was no food in the house uh, and so we were out on a picnic and I had a very miserable little sandwich and people were kind to keep offering me good things, choice food and sweet drinks. Feast! Because this day is sacred to the Lord. And while weeping may be the first response, it mustn't be the last one. You're under an obligation to celebrate and be glad because although you feel the gap of holiness between you and this God, you can rejoice that he has made it possible for the gap to be overcome. And that's why he's given us his law. That's why they wanted to move the people on from weeping to joy. And then secondly, and this is in an explanation that's given on the second day, according to verse 13 of chapter 8, build your booths. It's a, there's no satisfactory term for what it was that they were building. And booths isn't quite satisfactory. There's just something funny about the word booth, isn't there? It's just the sound of it, booth. You don't expect it somehow to be in a holy text. There, there it is, booth. Um, but as a reminder of the time in the wilderness without homes, moving from place to place, the law of God provided a festival of booths or tabernacles in which the people moved out of their houses and for a time lived inside these temporary structures of, well, here they say palm or myrtle or wild olive, on their roofs, in flat roofs in some cases, or in the courtyard, or, or in the temple itself. And it was a festival because it was a reminder that God provided for his people when they were undergoing their wanderings. And so the third question we might ask from this passage is this, when did the word of God last move, last move me to joy? And not just to a joy that was a kind of a nice feeling, but to enacted joy to a celebration that made a difference in my life and then overflowed to others as it was for them. Now, along the way, I've asked three questions. Do I come to the Bible remembering that this is the voice of a God who delights to speak with me? Secondly, do I find the Bible moves me to deep repentance in the face of a holy God? And thirdly, do I find that the Bible thrills me with a joy that changes the lives even of those around me as well as myself? I've asked those questions, but as we draw to a close, I also face a dilemma. Because what am I going to say to you? That the Bible should do all this for you and for me, and that if it doesn't, it's your fault and it's mine. 
Or perhaps we can say that all this happened uh, for the Bible, the law of God, on a good day. So if it doesn't do the same things for us in our day, it's the fault of the Holy Spirit and we have no responsibility. There is something unique about that day, those days. What happened in those days in the square before the Watergate in Jerusalem was what we'd have to call these days revival. Down the centuries, there have been many times when people who should be familiar with the ways of God, people who've called themselves by the name of Christ, have been awakened to the deadening effects of sin. They've wept and mourned and grieved. And then the Holy Spirit has come remarkably upon that community in power and new life and joy. Think of the whole Quaker and Shaker movements of the 17th and 18th centuries, or Methodism under the Wesleys. And in the light of that power, these people have been moved to joy and real changed lives. In 1859, revival came upon uh, the mining communities of South Wales in Tregaron and the villages around. In 1921, revival came in great power upon the fishing uh, communities of Lowestoft, uh, not in our own county, but in our own diocese. And those revivals saw hardened men hardened miners in Wales, hardened fishermen in Lowestoft, turn away from social lives constructed upon alcohol and upon violence. That was revival. And that's my dilemma. I can urge you to read the Bible, but I can't make you hear the voice of God. I can nudge you towards recognizing God's holiness but I can't make tears flow. I can suggest that glory is to be found in rejoicing, but I can't bring revival. But I can point out this story and point out that this story that we find in Nehemiah, tucked away in the Old Testament, this story has been echoed many times down Christian history. And I can say that we stand every day in need of revival while we and those around us are not moved to tears by the holiness of God. While we are not led to powerful change by rejoicing in God. Our ambitions and our vision will not be met by clever planning, wise and necessary as though that may be any more than the key on the day of the Watergate was the building of a platform for Ezra. That was not the key. This is a story that drives me to my knees in confession of my complete inability to do what is needed, even as it opens my eyes to the needfulness of what is needed. These people, remember, lived in days when the Holy Spirit was shed on only a few, and we live in days when we are glad that he makes himself present upon the whole people of God. So how much the more do I covet what they knew in those days? 
how easy is it for me to take eternal, to have the name of eternal life and yet take eternal life for granted? If we but knew the depths of sin and the appalled horror and indeed hate that God must have for sin, but with that also the heights of mercy and delight that God chooses to display in us, then would it not drive us to the weeping that must turn to joy? Can we pray together? Lord Jesus Christ, may your Holy Spirit move us from your word, first to grief and then to joy, before a God whose holiness it is impossible for us to meet, and yet he meets us. Enlighten our minds to your truth and then stir our hearts, we pray. Amen.